0: The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We've recently had some great conversations with directors whose documentaries are currently available on Netflix. Ken and I spoke with Rory Kennedy about Downfall, her searing indictment of Boeing and its enablers. We also spoke with Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries in which he reveals the poignantly personal side of the legendary artist. And Ken spoke with Cootie Simmons and Chiki Oza about Genius a portrait of another great artist, the young Kanye West, as he makes his way from obscurity to renown. You can find these conversations in the Top Docs feed, and you can watch these documentaries now on Netflix.
1: Felicity, Can you give us a brief logline of the film?
2: Yes. So The Tinder Swindler is about a group of women who were the victims of a con artist who uses Tinder to meet them and how they discover that he's taken them for thousands of dollars and they basically join together in an attempt to hunt him down and bring him to justice.
1: This is Top Docs and I'm Ken Jacobson. And I'm Mike Merrill. Today, we're talking to Felicity Morris, the director and writer of The Tinder Swindler. The Tinder Swindler debuted on Netflix on February 2nd of this year, and within five days became the most popular documentary ever to premiere on the platform. Felicity Morris, the writer and director, is head of U.S. documentary development at the London-based production company, Raw, where she has been overseeing a diverse slate of feature documentaries and series. As producer, Felicity's most recent credits include Netflix's Emmy-winning series, Don't Fuck With Cats, and A&E's critically acclaimed series, Waco, Madman, or Messiah. The Tinder Swindler is her feature documentary debut, and it has just been nominated for five Emmy Awards for outstanding documentary, outstanding writing, picture editing, sound editing, and music composition. So it's really interesting to talk to Felicity and learn more about how she and her team came to this topic and added to it. I didn't know this, but basically there was a Norwegian media company, VG, which published the story, but only up to a point. Felicity and her team were making a documentary with the two main protagonists. And it wasn't until the edit when they basically figured out, we need a third act for this film. And that's when they came across and that's when they came across the story of Eileen Charlotte, who's the Dutch woman who was also swindled by Simon Leviev. And it's really her story of getting even with Simon that takes the film to a new level all the way through its conclusion. So this is a really interesting story because so much of it takes place on social media and specifically the platform Tinder, but also it touches on other platforms like Instagram. Mike, I thought it was interesting that you were able to kind of relate, I think, a more common experience that many of us have had with Instagram to this sort of sensational story.
0: Yeah, I'm not on Tinder, to be clear. But I do think that some of the appeal of the story to me, and probably more broadly, is that the storybook version that Simon creates of himself, this perfect version where all of life's Faults and failings and challenges and embarrassments just don't exist. He lives in this prince-like world of luxury. In some ways, that's just an exaggerated version of what everyone does on Instagram, on Facebook. They create these worlds in which their lives look perfect. And every day is a day full of family and friends and joy and radical success. And Simon does that and more.
1: Yeah, I think part of the appeal of this film, no doubt, is that at some level, millions and millions of people can relate to it,
0: even if they haven't been swindled for tens of thousands of dollars. And the other thing that we spoke about with Felicity is their use of other movie conventions that also appeal to people. So the fairy tale, the rom-com, and even the thriller that they consciously created and recreated these. Felicity talks about giving specific direction to her Emmy-nominated composer, Jessica Jones, to be ready to embrace all these different genres that they would use in drawing in the audience. Another thing that's really
1: striking about the film and that she talked about was the visual style of recreating all of these text messages and voice memos and really just immersing us back in the world of Tinder. Finally, I think she kind of went beyond the idea of this being a cautionary tale to turn it into something of a story of female empowerment. So there's a lot to take in with the documentary and with our conversation. And if you like this conversation, please follow us on your favorite podcast platform and tell a friend, and also follow us on Twitter at Top Docs Pod. So without further ado, our interview with Felicity Morris, the writer and director of the Tinder Swindler. Felicity Morris, welcome to Top Docs.
2: Thank you so much.
1: So Felicity, why do you make documentaries?
2: I'm an inherently nosy person, and I'm fascinated by both sort of movies and people. And obviously, documentaries are a way to combine those interests. And if you're a nosy person, it's just about the best job out there because you get to go to very peculiar places and meet fascinating people with unbelievable stories that in normal life and in inverted commas you never would have imagined. I've just been, I guess, in the sort of course of my career, lucky enough to meet people that you just never would have done. And then to have that sort of trust from somebody for you to be able to tell this sort of extraordinary, whether it be a kind of life altering or holy S-H-I-T story, I was trained as a journalist and I think there's sort of a nose that comes with that and you're always wanting to know you know well why you know why is that why is that person found themselves in that situation and certainly with longer form documentaries we get the chance to go into all of those details and ask all of the questions that maybe you wouldn't even ask a friend but you've sat there interviewing somebody and you get to understand the full scope of their story but particularly in the films and the series that I've made I think it's Ordinary people who have just found themselves in extraordinary situations. And I've loved the stories and the films and the series that I've worked on so far for those reasons.
1: The Norwegian news outlet VG first reported on this story of the Tinder swindler. Their story is featured in your documentary. Their reporting features the stories of Cecilia, who's from Norway, and Pernilla of Stockholm. But I don't think it includes the story of Eileen Charlotte, the Dutch woman, who's the third woman featured in your film's final act. Can you tell us when you came to the story and how did you collaborate with VG?
2: Cecilia was obviously the first woman that at the point at which she realized that the police weren't going to do anything to help her. She thought, what on earth can I do to stop this guy? She knew she wasn't the only woman that he was doing this to, just because of how much money he was spending. She's Norwegian, but lives in London. So she went to the BG, which is the biggest newspaper in Norway, wrote to their tip line, I've got an incredible story for you. And then the three journalists that we interview in the film, and we really wanted to showcase the work that these journalists did, which is they then went in search of him and what he is doing and who he is and where he grew up. They go to Israel. And in the course of their investigation, they essentially discover Penilla, who Cecilia had no idea about. But because of the fact that they were going with a fine tooth comb through Cecilia's Amex statements, they found the names of women on her American Express statement. And one of those names was Penilla. And so they called Penilla and they said, do you know Simon the Five? We believe him to be a con artist. What was great about that is by Cecilia going out and speaking out about what was happening to her. It was like a battle was then passed to Penilla. And then we didn't film Eileen's interview Until we were in the edit, we spoke to a lot of victims and we knew that there was a victim who had been seeing him right up until the point that he was arrested. When the VG article went out, it went viral and that was how we picked up on the story in the first place is because of the fact that newspapers, online sites basically picked up the story of the Tinder swindler. And Eileen, the story itself then came to her because it came up on her Instagram. I imagine just because of the fact that she followed Simon and the algorithm did all the right things in that sense. She then had got in contact with Penilla. She messaged Penilla on Instagram and said, I've read this story. I'm dating him at the moment. I feel like I'm living in a nightmare. And then... Penila had written back to her saying, oh my goodness, let us help you. But Eileen at that point just didn't know who to believe. She didn't know who to trust. And so therefore went to the police in the Netherlands, but then did her own reconnaissance herself. She allowed Simon to keep the lie going so that she could keep in contact with him because she knew that He had obviously taken all of this money from her and didn't want to say, I know who you are. And for him to just disappear into thin air, she knew that she had an opportunity actually to be somebody who could feed back information to the police. Because of the fact that the VG article had gone viral, it meant that he couldn't meet any other women on Tinder. He had no other way of getting any other money. But we didn't know that that third act of the film, we didn't have that when we were going through it. We just knew that there was this woman called Eileen who had essentially been there right up until the end that he was arrested. The producer on the film, Bernadette, she did an amazing job of gently speaking to Eileen, being open with her about this was a film about the victims, saying that we didn't need her to go into all of the details of their relationship, an 18-month, very traumatic experience for her. She then said, okay, I'll do it, but I want to be anonymous. And we said, no, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of here. There's nothing to be ashamed of telling your story. And actually what she did was really incredible. And the response to her getting his clothes and selling them on eBay and trying to get a little bit of revenge. I think people at home who watched it, they loved her and were cheering her on for that.
0: Cecilia says that her notion of romantic love was built upon repeated viewings of Disney's Beauty and the Beast in her girlhood. Well, I would have guessed this might've been on a TV, I think you show it on a small, like a the phone screen, suggesting in some ways a continuity between that initial experience and ultimately what she's looking for. It's almost as if she were primed for a fairy tale, you know, in Beauty and the Beast, the Beast turns into a prince. Here, the prince, of course, turns into a beast. Could you talk about wh- why you brought that in and what you were trying to emphasize there?
2: Well, I think what it was is that the reason why Simon's con works so well is because He appears to be the perfect man. He ticks every single box in some people's eyes. Handsome, wealthy, a gentleman. And he calls himself the Prince of Diamonds. When I was thinking about directing this film, and obviously it's about modern love and dating, and he targeted women of a certain age who are a similar age to me, I was thinking, well, what have I I grown up on that has probably skew. you know you can get lost in a fantasy of what love should actually be I think now things are changing at the likes of Disney but certainly you know young women of my age it's like we've grown up watching rom-coms watching Jennifer Lopez in The Wedding Planner or having these sort of meet cute moments where you come together something happens that's maybe a bit bad and you both work through it but then at the end there's a happy ending that seemed to me the kind of Structure under which Simon was working. It was they meet. They have this incredible first date. For all of the women that he meets, then life gets difficult because of his enemies. But there's a promise of this is going to come good in the end. There's going to be a happy ending. And so we spoke to Cecilia about you know what did you watch when you were growing up? Where did your idea of love come or your fantasy idea of love? Because that's what Simon is selling is a fantasy. She said Beauty and the Beast. And if you look at the arc of that story, it's so similar actually to what she was living and hoping for with Simon is going through a difficult time together, but ultimately having this Prince Charming that ticks all the boxes.
1: Let's talk about the framing and design of your interviews. These are set up very cinematically. In the interview with Cecilia, the interview takes place in what looks like a very nice restaurant with very warm light. There's two glasses of wine set up in place. All of these elements, even the way I'd say Cecilia is dressed, feel very much like a romantic date to me. Can you talk about why you wanted to set the stage for the interviews in such a way?
2: The film starts off, obviously, in the world of dating. The producer and I had lots of conversations. Should they be in a home? Should they be, you know, and then it's no, they should absolutely be on a date. And then From that came the sense of obviously wanting to just create an intimacy between the viewer, between the audience and them. The idea that they are sat at this table with their glass of wine while this woman tells their story. And that's the bubble that we wanted to create. We worked with a cinematographer called Edgar Dobrowski and chose these sort of lovely lenses to obviously play off the warm lighting. We filmed Cecilia's interview Very much in the midst of COVID in a French restaurant in London. It's a very romantic, lovely restaurant, but we had to have the doors open because of COVID. So actually the sort of feeling when we were all there was far from cozy and comfortable. We were sat with blankets on our laps and so on. And then, you know, Pinilla is a bit, she's not the sort of romantic that Cecilia is, but she still met Simon on a kind of glamorous date. And we found her location, we filmed her in Stockholm and we'd actually gone to dinner at the restaurant and Edgar, the cinematographer had gone downstairs and poked his head into this other room. And that was the room with all the mirrors behind. And then Eileen comes into the story in a different part of it. The sort of bubble is burst, the fairy tale is over. She sat with a coffee rather than a wine glass. It's the daytime, it's like real life. We're in real life now, but we still wanted to keep that date setting.
1: The way the Tinder Swindler is constructed kind of mirrors the experiences of the women. The first third of the film is basically devoted to the fun times, the fantasy aspect, the dating, the travel, the amazing food and wine. And it's not really until almost 30 minutes into the film that the fun stops and Simon's fleecing of these women begins. In this sense, I think you're seducing the audience, or at least I felt somewhat seduced. Can you talk about how you structured the film in order to hook the audience, engage them throughout, and put them through this kind of experience?
2: The reason why at the start that we spend the time in the love story is because of the fact that it was really important for us, for the audience through these women's retelling of what happened to them, for them to really understand what it was that hooked them in and how convincing Simon is as the perfect boyfriend. I mean, the producer and I, we would constantly call it the Simon experience. And we wanted the audience to have that Simon experience, even though obviously they're a step ahead of where the women were in the film because of the title, The Tinder Swindler. So from the very start, you know that he's probably not going to be who we think he is. But we really wanted the audience to feel that being swept off your feet those first kind of weeks of falling in love, of getting messages on your phone from the person who you're dating and that ping being a little dopamine hit and, you know, that sort of longing to see somebody if they're traveling and then that coming back together again, sleeping together for the first time, the first kiss. All of these women, I mean, Penilla, it was a friendship, but all of the victims that we spoke to, they just describe being swept up into this whirlwind of kind of love and What we know now is that's actually called love bombing. And in a lot of these cases, that's what these con artists do. And in coercively controlling relationships as well, that's how it starts. And abusive relationships it's I love you, I love you, I can't live without you, I want to give you everything. And then you're blinded by that love so that then when the problems start, you're whipped up into such a whirlwind that it's very difficult then to get yourself out of that tornado. What we also wanted to show was that Everyone will say, oh God, I would never fall for that guy. I would never fall for that. How could she be so stupid? That's a red flag. That's a red flag. But when you're in it, they aren't red flags because he stands up. You know, he has an entourage around him, a legitimate entourage around him. So you think that he's wealthy. He is flying by private jets. You know, Simon isn't doing all of this as a catfish behind the computer. He's doing this in real life. So that was in that first part of the film that we wanted the audience to experience so that they could understand then why the women give money, why they felt that they were in a legitimate, loving relationships and sort of would do anything to help this man when he asked them and when he said that his life was in danger.
0: In April of this year, it was announced that The Tindler Swindler was Netflix's most watched documentary up to that point. I think the number I have is 166 million hours watched the first 28 days of release. So congratulations, amazing. Some of the interest of this film, let's talk about that a little bit. So there's a very particular story about a very particular con artist and his victims. But also I think it hits on because it's Tinder and Instagram, the the world in which young people live today. And while most folks probably don't know someone's been built out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, they probably know or have run into somebody who's met someone who's completely misrepresented themselves on social media. I think of West Elm Caleb. Have you heard of West Elm Caleb? Okay. You know, in New York. And while they may not even know West Elm Caleb, they probably have met some other lesser known Lothario wannabes out there. Is that some of the interest of the story for people, do you think?
2: I think definitely. It's amazing, actually, how many people have come forward since tinder has come out and contacted us saying this happened to me this happened to me please can you look into it please can you make a film about me and for some people it's i met this guy and he or girl and they took 10 grand from me or bernie and i've been at, at dinners with various friends and actually since we've made the film friends of ours have come forwards and say Do you know what? I dated somebody actually ages ago who turned out to not be anything like who they said they were. I think that's the thing is that we've all had somebody in our life, be it a dodgy builder or whatever. You know, we've all kind of been conned. But then I think then when you throw love into it as well and that experience of being a heartbroken and be feeling incredibly foolish because usually when you're conned or when you're duped or whatever you feel like you're to blame and I think that the tinder swindler as well as obviously existing in this kind of poppy glamorous world I think it hit a chord with a lot of people who were watching it and genuinely feeling sorry for these women and you know how far it went because I think at the end of the day we always think this wouldn't happen to me I'd certainly hope that something like that wouldn't happen on that scale to people. But I think smaller scale cons have happened to a lot of people. And I think that therefore really resonated.
1: It is, though, this special kind of con, which I think is called an emotional con. And those do seem to be particularly painful and devastating. It's also a Ponzi scheme. Can you remind us how Ponzi schemes work and why they're so insidious?
2: So a Ponzi scheme is essentially using The money, if you think about Bernie Madoff, that was what he was doing on an enormous scale, but it's using one person's money to then, in Simon's case, it was creating this sort of paying for the lifestyle that essentially then he was conning somebody else into believing that he had. So it's using one person's money and then to pay for something that actually doesn't exist or that actually isn't there. And that's what he had. He had multiple women essentially paying for this sort of overall lifestyle that Simon Levive, the Prince of Diamonds, and none of them knew essentially where that money was going or what that was really paying for.
0: Let me add a, another layer to it. You tell us right up front, this is called the Tindler Stone Layer. So we know it's going to be a con game, but the question becomes of how it runs and the effect it has on the people. And it looks like it's kind of a con called the Spanish Prisoner, which in which a wealthy, seemingly wealthy person befriends someone, gets them to trust them, and then typically offers them, hey, I got a deal. And I thought that's what was going to happen. He's going to say, hey, do you want to be part of my diamond deal? That's not what he does. He says he turns and he creates a sense of danger, right? Can you talk a bit about that kind of emotional side of it? Like, how was he actually achieving this?
2: Many, many ways. Each of the three women handed us their WhatsApp. So every message that you see on screen is a real WhatsApp that went back and forth between Simon or one of the women. It starts off kind of an, an intangible thing that they know that Simon works in the diamond industry. We spent a lot of time talking to them about what did you imagine that that world was like for him? What did you imagine that he was doing? And he would say that he was spending time in Africa, that he'd been to prison before, that he was working towards this big deal with dangerous, shady people. And, you know, I talked to Cecilia about the movie Blood Diamond, which is turf wars and things going wrong and quite violent and dangerous. And I think that because of the fact that Simon does this thing where he talks very quickly. So, if you ask him a question, you try and pull him up again on anything, he'll talk and talk and talk, and then you don't have the time to interject. And so, even when these women would question him on things or ask that extra question, he would throw them something else that would throw them off the scent of the fact that perhaps he wasn't working in the diamond world and he wasn't a member of the Levi family. But for them, right from the start, he talked about life being difficult, Simon having a lot of enemies. They saw that Simon needed a bodyguard wherever he went. Therefore, when things started happening, like when you see in the film that Simon in the middle of the night texted each of them, used what I think was a a bar fight. Him and the bodyguard were possibly out. Who knows? We don't know what, what happened there. The bodyguard, Peter, got hit over the head with something. Simon then used that incident to basically say that that was... A clash with his enemies and these women got calls in the middle of the night from their boyfriend saying oh my god oh my god this has happened this is really close to her home now I could have lost my life as OTT is all of that sounds it's all about putting yourself in their shoes and imagining that if that was your partner who's experiencing that and waking up in the middle of the night receiving texts like that sort of how you would feel and I know that I would certainly feel, you know, my heart would be pounding and I'd be thinking, what can I do to help you? And so it was little by little, basically. And obviously in the film, we couldn't go over kind of every little detail. We had to do the bigger chunks of the kind of things that Simon did to show that his life was dangerous. But it all essentially built to them believing that things were really bad. And particularly for Eileen, it lasted so much longer. She was swept in almost into sort of a born identity world where Simon's enemies were constantly after him and she was having to wake up in the middle of the night and pick him up from the airport and drive him across borders and things like all of these things that were going on. It was all fake or in actual fact with Simon when it came to Eileen, some of these enemies were actually the women who he had conned who were then trying to track him down, all these journalists who were then trying to track him down
0: you talk about the creation of all those graphics for the WhatsApp messages and the Instagram and all the social media?
2: That was a huge, huge part of making this film was essentially we had all of these other rushes to create. So we had obviously the interviews, visuals, GBS, that kind of thing. But then the graphical side of it, the bringing the WhatsApps, the Tinder profiles, all of that to life. We had an assistant producer called Jean-Marc and obviously Julian Hartley. And together with me building all of these. So we have two phones, what a Cecilia phone and a Pinilla phone, texting back and forwards as Simon to basically screen record and recreate them. I think Jean-Marc made about a thousand of these in the end. That screen time-wise for the whole film is probably nearly a third of what you see.
0: We get to see some of the really horrible trolling that happens of these women. And also some commentary, like the note I had on the nature of the con, that the con wasn't appealing to someone's quote-unquote greed, but was based upon fear and emotion is brought up in some of the comments we see that come up. And the voice memos really hit home as well.
2: Yeah, we were really quite shocked when we found those because we had Cecilia and Panilla's voice notes first, and he doesn't get that demonic with them, but with Eileen, he just loses it, at which point she knows what he's about, fortunately but that just complete change from how he'd been to turning into that sort of demon is really shocking and is actually abusive. We use him in the film and I think people sort of laugh at it because he's losing his composure and we know that this is his downfall, but actually that's really abusive behavior. But the revenge is sweet <laughs> at the end.
1: We started out talking about Beauty and the Beast, but you just brought up, the born identity, and it seems when Pernilla and Eileen decide to work with VG to try to nail Simon, it seems actually like they're furthering the plot of a thriller. And they've fallen into this new film genre, and your movie starts to feel a bit like a James Bond movie. Can you talk a bit about the influence of the thriller genre, perhaps on the behavior of the women at this point? Because now, in a way, they're the heroines of a different kind of movie.
2: We definitely saw that the film went from a romantic comedy or whatever to then a kind of cat-and-mouse chase thriller with a bit of horror, psychological horror, I guess, in Cecilia's realising everything about Simon and just how dark this guy is. But the thriller side of it, certainly when we were scripting it out and thinking about where the story goes, thinking about the journalists coming in, the sort of boots on the ground trying to get Simon... We thought, well, this is the thriller now. I remember speaking to the composer about the series, Jessica Jones, and I said, this isn't just a one genre film. It goes from being this to this to this to this. So you're going to have work on your hands, basically. We need you to do all the music to help us with that. But talking about the way that the women saw themselves within this, they certainly didn't feel that they were heroines in their own story We talked a lot with them about how we think that we're going to structure the film and how at one point, Cecilia, that's this now, this is when you're going to get him kind of thing. And I remember saying to her in the interview at the point at which she hasn't got the police helping her, she doesn't really know what to do, but then takes back the agency into her own hands. And I said to her, were you thinking at this point who was going to get him? Obviously wanting the response from her to be, I was going to get him. I was going to get him. It was me. And she said in the interview, I, I, don't, I don't understand. And I said, you were getting him, Cecilia. That's what you were doing by going to the press. You were going to expose him and try and bring him down. She was like, Oh, yes. You know, I think that all three of them, until they sort of watched the film and felt the feedback of that just positivity, I think they all still felt stupid and ashamed. And actually, you know, we really wanted them to be the heroines in their own story and that you know as i said that there was this on passing that without the sort of bravery and coming forwards of cecilia then Penilla wouldn't have found out about simon and eileen wouldn't have either
0: there's this moment where cecilia learns about simon's background and the con he's as pulled and she begins to question everything she's seen what did the bodyguard know what do the drivers know the woman who is mother to simon's child Is she involved in this? And all the questions she raised are many of the same questions I was asking myself as I was walking through the film. It's almost like retrospectively, she's asking all the questions we asked throughout. Is that sort of the experience you expected there?
2: Yeah, because the audience were always a little bit further ahead than Cecilia was, or perhaps could foresee little bits of the story. But I think that we managed to tell it in a way that you didn't expect it to go in the way that it did. Tinder Swindler is obviously a very clickable title, for sure. But having Swindler in the title, we were really concerned about whether or not an audience would therefore be too much in the know, and therefore not live that first part of the story with Cecilia, especially. They're like, wow, this guy, we know where this is going, come on. But I think that you always want to pull at threads, obviously, at the start of a story, get those threads being pulled. And then we knew that there would be those question marks that obviously Cecilia had had of herself when the scale started to fall and things became clear. And there are still questions I think that people ask of Simon. There are still questions that we ask of him today. And that was certainly something that we wanted the film at the end for people to feel was, you know, how is he still out there? How has he still got all this money coming in? How on earth did he have as much money coming in? to pay for all of those private jets, all of those people to be flying around with him, all of those meals, all of those hotels.
1: One of the mysteries that you don't fully explore, and I think for good reason, is who is this guy, Simon Leviev or the real Shimon? And we do get a glimpse into the real person, the quote unquote real person, when the VG reporters travel to Israel and the Israeli reporter tracks down his home address They go to this apartment building in the outskirts of Tel Aviv and just seems like coincidentally his mother shows up. It gives us a glimpse into who he may have been growing up as well as how he turned out. What maybe that's not in the film did you learn about Simon as you were going about doing your research?
2: We actually learned loads about Simon. We always knew that This wasn't going to be a film for Simon to tell his story and more of his lies that we wanted to put the women front and centre. And obviously Simon is very present in the film through his voice notes and videos and so on. But obviously through the course of researching and investigating ourselves, there were dozens of other stories that we found. The producer and I, Bernie, we and a team at Raw made a podcast which was called The Making of a Swindler." That goes into Simon's backstory, where we interview victims from years and years and years and years before he was doing the King of Diamonds con. We interview a British woman called Courtney, who knew him back in Cyprus, who got her into trouble by renting a car on a fake credit card. We interview other victims that met him and came into his orbit. We explore the crimes that he committed in Finland, which he went to prison for. Simon was posing as a person who worked in the weapons industry when he was in Finland, and he met three Finnish women. And essentially, the cops, because of the fact that it was three victims living in one country, managed to track him down, and he went to prison in Finland. But then as soon as he got out of prison... He then took on the Simon Levive persona, changed his name, and the chameleon lived on, I guess. We also spoke to some of his childhood friends. We spoke to a rabbi who lives in New York who alleges that Simon and his father, who is also a rabbi, tried to con him out of thousands of dollars. So really the kind of web of Simon Levive It spreads really far. We've done all of this research, but we didn't want it to be in the film. And so therefore, we made a three-part podcast series.
0: We'll link to that in the show notes. Many of the victims you document come from Nordic countries. Norway, Sweden, Finland, the Netherlands. These are fairly wealthy countries, but they are also countries that are notably high on social trust. So if you look at a chart for countries where people will trust other people, these countries are up in the right-hand quadrant. Do you think that Simon may have targeted these women deliberately because of this factor?
2: It wouldn't surprise me if he had. I mean, we've spoken to other victims who are from Berlin, from other places, but I think it's no coincidence that obviously many, many of his victims were from the Nordics. And Cecilia and Penilla will openly say, you know, I, I wonder if it's because of the fact that we're a bit more trusting, we're a bit less cynical perhaps. But in saying that, I think Simon just, cast the net really wide. I think that he was swiping, 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 swiping on Tinder. I, I think that he was particular about what the women that he dated looked like. I think that he liked the idea of dating and having relationships with people who he believed looked a certain way. Not all of the women are from Scandinavia, but it's interesting, obviously, that two in the film are.
0: You just brought something up that I wondered about, which was, is he just doing this for the money? And the glamour and the feeling important? Or in some ways, does he enjoy this kind of very strange romantic thing he's creating? Because sometimes he keeps the conversation going way longer. He's kind of taking all their money and he keeps contacting them and come to Amsterdam, I'll write you a check. It seems like he liked that part of it too.
2: We often joke that actually Simon has really good taste in women because the women that we spoke to and that we spent time with, we got on with really well. You know, they're kind. They are sociable and obviously with somebody like Penilla, Simon didn't have that romantic relationship. But I think that from reading the WhatsApp that he genuinely liked her company. I mean, people have talked about whether Simon's a sociopath and a psychopath and what kind of relationships people like that need. But I think certainly there was an aspect of it that Simon enjoyed having a beautiful woman on his arm, all to probably keep the picture of him being this playboy, wealthy guy living in a glamorous world.
1: There's one scene that really struck me in particular. It's the one where Pernilla, who's by now working with the Norwegian reporters to help bring down Simon, confronts Simon in a phone call. And it's a really interesting scene because even though she now has the facts at her disposal and is trying to assert her control over the narrative, His denials are relentless. He ups the ante by threatening her, and she gets scared, understandably. In a sense, she's ended the call in emotionally worse shape than when she began, it seems like. Again, totally understandable. This, to me, shows how deep the emotional con goes. He can't get money from her anymore, but he can still reach her emotionally.
2: I think that we were really lucky... To have that piece of archive because it's obviously very raw and shows Simon for who he really is. We had various voice notes showing him getting angry. But I think that really, as you said, just showed that if you tell him what you know, he'll come back with a lie. There's no lie that Simon can't tell. There's no talking that Simon can't do to try and get himself out of a situation. I think that it also does show, like you say, that these were real relationships, you know, where people feelings were involved and hearts were broken as much as Cecilia hates Simon Rao and obviously never get back with him I think she still mourns the loss of that relationship as many of us do if they've had their heart broken and I think that's the case with these women it's really complicated isn't it because I think they've got both the Questioning themselves constantly still thinking, what did I do wrong? How could I have been so duped so dramatically in this way? But then essentially they had many months of a relationship. For Eileen, it was 18 months with somebody who they loved really deeply and who they believed that for Cecilia and Eileen that they had found their person. And that they were going to spend the rest of their lives with him. And for Penilla, that was a friendship that she thought was going to be a lifelong friendship. And they'd spent a lot of time together and she'd invested in that friendship. And then to have him turn like that, to not be the person that she believed him to be, I think was really confronting and horrible for her in that moment
0: the very title of your film emphasizes the role of tinder and throughout the whole story we see on tinder and social media especially instagram this is how simon creates this aura around himself that is false it's part of the whole con but at the very end cecilia basically doesn't see tinder as being the problem she's made over a thousand matches on tinder she tells you as soon as the relationship with simon was over she got right back on tinder And she says that Tinder doesn't have anything to do with this. What do you think of that judgment?
2: Look, I mean, millions of people use dating apps and they don't end up in the situation that these women did. Tinder is the hunting ground for Simon, but really the con comes to life in real life. I would say that Cecilia is certainly more guarded, I think now when she dates people, but what's amazing about her is that she hasn't lost her faith in love. And many people I think would have come off the back of that experience saying you know what all men are awful and I'm never dating again I'm just going to close myself off where she is open and the thing about Cecilia is that she really wants to find that big sweep you off your feet love she still wants that for herself that's the kind of relationship I think that she would like to find and she's incredibly resilient It's funny because when Netflix announced the Tinder Swindler, Tinder got in touch with Netflix and said, what is this that's coming out? And they said, look, it it does involve Tinder, but actually we're not pointing the finger at Tinder here. We're not saying that people shouldn't use dating apps because that's how many of us meet partners these days. And actually by the end of the film, it's not that the conclusion that we come to is that Tinder is the villain here. Simon is the villain. And fortunately for him, And with it being the 21st century, he would be doing this if Tinder didn't exist. He would just be meeting women in bars or in restaurants and picking people up. But he has Tinder and that sort of makes it easier for him to make that first connection.
1: One of the things that I think is in the film is that there's kind of a lesson in here about female empowerment and how women can rely on other women who can support them and help them do things together. that. Individually, they might have struggled to do. Can you talk just a little bit more about this idea of women focusing on their own friendship, perhaps more than on this fairy tale idea of romance with one dude?
2: Yeah. It's really funny because the women will say that with each other, they found really great friends, but they're the most expensive friendships in terms of how much it's cost them to get to each other. But what is really brilliant about it is obviously how one woman's choice to speak out, regardless of knowing that she might be called stupid, that she's probably going to get trolled online, that people won't be forgiving of her, that sort of victim blaming is basically somewhat entrenched in the world that we live in, that one woman comes out and that then sparks the domino effect. What we've even learned recently is that there are other relationships that Simon has been in since And watching the film has made those women realise that he is not who he says he is. So there is a sort of a sisterhood, I guess, in this. If somebody doesn't speak out and say what's going on with them, regardless of how ashamed that you feel. then Cecilia said, I knew that there were other women out there and I knew that the only way... For them to know about what he was doing is if I go public with my story. But with that came a lot of backlash for her. When the VGPs came out, she was trolled really badly online. Both of the women were. But then they saw the opportunity of doing a Netflix film and the platform that would give them to put his face out there to millions of people, hopefully. And it has had that impact.
1: If you can tell us, what's up next for you?
2: Oh, that's a good question. The producer... On Tinder is a lady called Bernadette Higgins and she and I are co-directing a new series which is an incredible story and that is all that I can tell you. (laughs) It hasn't been announced yet but this sort of the Tinder team is back together and we've found just an amazing, amazing story with lots of incredible twists and turns and we're actually off to shoot next week our first set of interviews.
1: I'm glad we had a chance to talk to you before you run off to shoot another amazing story. I want to congratulate you on the film and on your Emmy nominations. I think you've done a masterful job of featuring these women's stories in a way that is not salacious or gossipy, but really in the end, leaves us feeling like these are courageous women who did whatever they could to go after this guy and ultimately assert their own independence and strength of character.
2: Thank you so much, it's been a pleasure. My hidden documentary gem, and I don't know how hidden it is because it was on Apple, it's called Twas the Fight Before Christmas and it's made by a filmmaker called Becky Reed who was the producer on another documentary called Three Identical Strangers. It's a neighbourhood story, a man in Idaho, very Republican and right-wing, moves into the town and wants to put on a. Christmas show, which sort of disrupts this neighborhood. The film itself sort of, I think, tells the wider story of the polarized views of people in America, but it's darkly funny and masterfully cut together and just has such character, I think, which really comes from Becky Reed, the director's personality. She is funny as hell.